0: From Washington, D.C., this is on the ground. From climate justice wars in Glasgow, Scotland, to the elected government of Ethiopia fighting for its people's sovereignty, to the Poor People's Campaign here in the United States. The urgent demand is for an end to imperialist wars and an end to economic and environmental exploitation.
1: We can no longer serve two gods. We must choose. Capitalism or the pursuit of life with dignity. Capitalism or the pursuit of a life worth living. We must choose now.
0: And one journalist's fight to get the real story out about Ethiopia is evidence of a larger fight against the same talking points of U.S. warmongers Fed to a corporate media.
2: Nearly 1,000 miles away seems to be as close as some of the worst U.S. media offenders like the AP and Washington Post writer Kara Anna and New York Times Declan Walsh can get to the Ethiopian capital on the limited resources provided to them by their paper's billionaire owners.
0: All that and much more coming up on the show. Welcome to On the Ground, ground onthegroundshow.org, Voices of Resistance from the Nation's Capital. I'm Mr. Ivarim. Well, as COP26, the UN Climate Summit, ends in Glasgow without much to say for itself, the real power during the two week gathering has definitely been in the streets, where upwards of 100,000 people marched on November 6th in Glasgow alone, and more marched in solidarity rallies around the world. It was the first climate summit since last year's uprising against racism. And Black, Brown, and Indigenous people, though underrepresented inside the conference, often took center stage in addressing the crowds outside the COP and led in reframing the climate movement as a movement that is anti colonial and anti imperialist. Meanwhile, Europe and the United States, responsible for 70% of the Earth's historic carbon emissions, are still planning to further ramp up extractions of oil and gas while abandoning promises for even meager reparations to the global South author Vijay Prashad, spoke at a People's Summit outside the COP on Wednesday, November 10th.
3: When I listen to Boris Johnson, when I listen to people like Joe Biden, when I listen even more to Emmanuel Macron, all I can think of is how condescending you are. You only know condescension because for you, colonialism isn't something that happened in the past and we defeated, we defeated you. It's not that. For you, colonialism is a permanent condition. And that permanent condition happens in two ways. There's the permanent condition of the colonial mentality. You want to lecture us. You want to tell us that we are responsible for all the problems because you'll never accept that you're the one principally to blame. You like to say we're all in this together and so on. We're not in this together. And let me tell you something. The climate justice movement is a movement that says we're worried about our future. What future? What future? Children in the African continent, in Asia, in Latin America, they don't have a future. They don't have a present. They're not worried about the future. They're worried about their present. Your slogan is we're worried about the future. That's a middle-class bourgeois Western slogan. You've got to be worried about now. 2.7 billion people can't eat now. And you're telling people, reduce your consumption. How does this sound to a child who hasn't eaten in days? You've got a clue into this, guys. You've got a clue into this. Otherwise, this movement will have no legs in the third world. No legs.
0: In Glasgow, Prashad also participated on a jury of the People's Tribunal to deliberate about the failure of the UN Framework Convention on Climate Change. In a post on social media, he said the jury found the UN convention guilty of failing to address the climate crisis. A report this week by a coalition headed by a global witness found that fossil fuel industry representatives had a larger presence at COP26 than officials from any single country. And early drafts of the final decision text for the summit failed to even mention phasing out all coal, gas and oil extraction more voices from outside the climate summit after headlines. Here in the U.S., the Congressional Black Caucus abandoned progressive Democrats, members of the squad, and voted to pass the so-called bipartisan infrastructure bill for roads, bridges, and projects like water systems without passing with it the broader human infrastructure bill, the Build Back Better Act, that will guarantee universal pre-K and funds for child care, elder care, health care, and to address the climate catastrophe. Joining the CBC were 13 House Republicans, who have since been the target of death threats from the extremist base of their own Republican Party. Because their vote to repair the nation's crumbling infrastructure is perceived as giving President Biden a victory that he and other Democrats can use to bolster any reelection bids. Never mind that key U.S. infrastructure, including roads, hazardous waste, and transit, are rated a D by the American Society of Engineers. The Poor People's Campaign says it will continue its pressure to also pass the Build Back Better Act. Economist Jeffrey Sachs joined the campaign this week for a town hall and press conference in West Virginia, taking particular aim at that state Senator, Joe Manchin, who Sachs said was neglecting the real needs of his own constituents.
4: If you fight every tax on the richest people in the world and then you say there's no money,
2: Aren't you playing a
5: game?
2: And maybe that's the game we saw when he was trying to drive his Maserati out of the garage.
0: The Poor People's Campaign is planning a rally again on Capitol Hill for the Build Back Better Act on Monday, November 15th at 12 p.m. Now, death threats against these Republicans who voted for that infrastructure package have only further expanded the rhetoric and atmosphere of violence in U.S. politics. This year, school board officials as well as election officials have been targeted by right-wing extremists over issues like mask mandates and claims of election fraud. This week, Representative Paul Gosar of Arizona, one of the Republicans linked to the planning of the January 6th insurrection, is facing censure for his posting of an animated video depicting him murdering Representative Alexandria Ocasio Cortez of New York and also dueling President Biden in a sword fight. Representative Jackie Spear, Democrat of California, co chair of the Democratic Women's Caucus, is leading an effort to introduce a resolution to censure Gosar, saying that it was beyond the pale for Gosar to use his official congressional resources to further violence against elected officials. All eyes are also on three court cases involving right-wing violence. In Wisconsin, the trial of Kyle Rittenhouse for the murder of two Black Lives Matter protesters, Anthony Huber and Joseph Rosenbaum, last year is headed to closing arguments after a week of controversy, including Rittenhouse's attorney filing for a mistrial, Rittenhouse offering a rather fake emotional testimony in his defense, and the judge repeatedly acting in a manner hostile to the prosecution. The trial of three men who killed Ahmad Aubrey in Georgia last year is also underway, as is the trial in Charlottesville, Virginia, for neo-Nazis who led a violent demonstration in that city in 2017, killing one protester and critically injuring many more. And finally, in culture and media, D.C. lawyers who are often on the ground are celebrating an anniversary. Chantel James has more.
6: The ACLU-DC held its 60th anniversary event on Monday, taking the opportunity to honor people who have made contributions to civil liberties in the district, as well as to celebrate its six decades of fighting for justice. The event featured live music, as those gathered reflected on landmark cases the ACLU-DC has been involved with throughout its history, including Loving v. Virginia, which made interracial marriage legal. Congresswoman Eleanor Holmes Norton was honored with the Arthur B. Spitzer Lifetime Achievement Award. She addressed everyone as she accepted it.
4: My most important civil rights challenge has been securing equal representation for the people of the District of Columbia. D.C. statehood is the only way to guarantee its residents full voting representation, home rule, and full equality with other US citizens. In April, the House passed my DC statehood bill for the second time in history. And the Senate has held a hearing on the bill, which has more co-sponsors than ever. We are closer than ever to passing this bill granting full equality to the nearly 700,000 Americans who not only pay federal taxes, but pay more federal taxes per capita than the residents of any of the 50 states.
6: Samantha Davis and Black Swan Academy were also honored at the event for their work with the Police Free Schools Campaign. For On the Ground, this is Chantal James.
0: And those are our headlines and happenings. This is On the Ground. Stay with us.
5: <laughs>
1: on the eve of her born day, because she is one of the reasons I can stand here today, Ache. Who I am is of no consequence, but who we are as the African diaspora will be. We choose now to end the divide and conquer tactics that are used to keep continental Africa and the African diaspora from uniting to address the environmental racism that plagues our countries and communities. Since the beginning of time, we as African peoples have always held the solution to the world's issues, and this climate crisis is no different. We choose now to say that all of our black futures matter. We demand a just transition for all black people across the diaspora. Equitable and direct investment into our countries and communities should be priority because we have contributed the least to the climate crisis but have been the most impacted. So please be expeditious with our loss and damages, please. Lastly, you all are invited on the journey. Put your fists up with me one time. Fist up. We choose now! Woo! <laughs> no! Sina. I Chora Rusia hebo Igbo people say when one chicken is offered in sacrifice to two gods, they will kill a human being to complete the offering. We cannot apply shortcuts to climate change, for the consequences will be severe. I am an Igbo woman a Nigerian American, a black woman, an immigrant at the front line of climate change. We can no longer serve two gods. We must choose capitalism or the pursuit of life with dignity, capitalism or the pursuit of a life worth living. We must choose now. Our houses are on fire and we can no longer wait for action. Our so-called world leaders wanna tell us how to run to safety. Climate justice is migrant justice. It is the right to leave and the right to stay where you call home. We remember today the Haitian migrants who were abused at the U.S. southern border for fleeing a hurricane, an earthquake, and a political crisis due to many actions by the global north. We choose now to fight for the dignity of all. We choose now to make a choice because if we do not make a choice now, it is a death sentence. We will not be sacrificed between two gods. Thank you please follow us in a chant the seas are rising and so are we the seas are rising that is the chant from the gulf south of the united states five states coming together to say that indigenous communities and members of the gulf south will not be removed from the conversation of climate action thank you
7: climate
8: justice climate justice climate justice O povo negro morre todos os dias.
1: The black Brazilian people dies every single day.
8: Seja pela violência policial.
1: For the brutality of the police. Pelo
8: racismo ambiental. For
1: the racism. races. Pela
8: desigualdade social.
1: For the, the social uh, difference between the population. Nós exigimos
8: a titulação dos territórios quilombolas no Brasil.
1: We want the Brazilian quilombolas lands being legalized. We watched the demarcation for the Brazilian Quilombolas.
8: São milhares de comunidades do no interior e no campo no Brasil.
1: There is thousands of Quilombolas communities in the cities and also in the outskirts of the cities. Nós
8: vivemos um grande genocídio do povo negro brasileiro.
1: We live... Alarge genocide of the black Brazilian people!
8: The MONDU precisa saber que temos um presidente genocida!
1: The world needs to know! We have a genocide president! The
8: precisa derrubar Bolsonaro!
1: The world needs to take Bolsonaro out!
8: FORA Bolsonaro! Fora, Fora Bolsonaro! Bolsonaro!
7: FORA, Fora Bolsonaro! Bolsonaro! today representing over five uh, half a million trade unionists in Scotland. It's the absolutely amazing Ross Fire. I want to start by thanking all of the people around the world who have taken action today to defend our planet and all those who live on it. And I'm here today to bring you a message of solidarity from Scotland's trade unions and the working people of Scotland. The actions that you are taking today are vitally important because we know the billionaires, the bosses and the politicians who run this planet are not going to make the changes that we need to make our planet sustainable. huge and angry and a powerful movement for change and we need to force our government to tax the rich to regulate and take our energy systems back into public ownership to set and to enforce emissions targets to fund the global south No group of workers and no poor countries on the scrap heap. We need to share the wealth and resources of this planet fairly across all of the people around the world. And we are not powerless to make change happen. Because we have the ability to build a force big enough to deliver the changes we need. And that force is people power. So let's make today the day that we all join together. The day that trade unionists say to climate campaigners that your fight for a sustainable planet is our fight and we will support you. And the day... The climate campaigners say to workers, your fight for fair, sustainable jobs is our fight and we will also support you.
9: Strong together and united and we can make this happen. Another world is possible. What we have always wanted is possible. We remain hopeful because another world is formable. Strength and hope is our way forward and courage. Even deniers will start to see what we see. Their eyes will be opened and enlightened by our persistence and truth and they won't deny anymore. They'll join us in this fight and demand for this world that we envision. The leaders will will listen because they won't have any other option because the power of the people always wins. Yes, we are unstoppable and we are going to heal this land. In fact, we are already healing the land with love, grace, and people power. So we should sing, pray, dance, love, protest, Organize, mobilize, shout, because another world is possible. And to leaders, governments, and businesses, they must always remember that we are all connected to earth. Earth is spiritual earth has a life of its own earth has an intellect earth has an understanding earth speaks and it can be spoken to and the question to leaders is if earth is speaking right now are you listening to the voice of the earth are you listening to what earth is saying thank you
10: everyone To on Glasgow, let's hear it from vanessa nakati It's incredible, people are still coming into the Demons, into the Glasgow Green, we've still got people all the way down Argyle Street, all around the country, thousands and thousands of people. Let me just tell you, organised by the COP26 coalitions, and I want to give a big cheer to all the volunteers who've helped put this on today, grassroots organisations from Glasgow and all over. And one of those organisations and a member of the COP26 coalition that we're really proud is, of course, Migrants Organised for Rights and Empowerment. And there are two comrades I want to introduce. Marvina. And somebody who really doesn't need much introduction, Yvonne. stalwarts of migrants organising here in Glasgow, the Global South and the Global North. Yvonne.
9: So before I get Yvonne on here, I want to get you
5: warmed up and I need you to rev it up when I speak, here. Yeah? Call and response, are we ready? for rights and empowerment. We're a migrant-led grassroots organization in Glasgow, and we campaign for asylum-seeking people's access to employment, education, decent housing, and dignity. We should not have to do that, but because of a hostile environment policy, because of a racist immigration system, because of systemic racism, we have to be campaigning so that people can have access to basic needs, people can have access to food, people can have access to clothing, people who are fleeing war on countries, war that has been imposed upon countries from the global north. We are here not because we are here by choice. We came here, our blood, sweat and tears bill this Glasgow. My ancestors were taken on the river Clyde taken we were sold in slavery we build this country this country belongs to us and we will not hide we will be visible and we will speak, and you will listen it is impossible it is impossible it is criminal it is i can't even find the word to describe it to to speak about climate justice unless you speak about migrant justice, unless you speak about racial justice. There cannot be no climate justice without migrant justice. There cannot be no climate justice without racial justice. Thank you so much. A people united can never be defeated. A people united
7: that the fight for climate justice has to be anti-colonialist, anti-imperialist, and anti-fascist. And so
11: our next performer is someone who's coming all the way from Chile, Ana Teju. Hello. Thank you so much. And I'm deeply grateful to be here today on this stage. And sharing with people from everywhere. i see seen so many flags that make so many sense. Like I see the Palestinian flag. And to understand that for us in Latin America, like, we want Palestina free, free. Because your fight is our fight. Because we understand that this battle is an international battle. And to understand that this amazing committee that invited me today, that is La Minga, that came from all America, from Alaska to Patagonia, people all over America, and people from Ecuador, Chile, Bolivia, Argentina, and represent the indigenous people that are learning and teaching to us what is about humanity and life. We are here for love and life. That is the goal. And to understand that we got one enemy. We can have so many differences between all of us, but we got one enemy, that is death. And this problem is against death and for life. So thank you so much to invite me and to be part, to learn and we got to learn to be, like, to listen to each other. This about uh, commitment, we say, la puta madre. <laughs> this is about, like, to listen to us and to have another way to make a world, another world without racism, without colonialism, and antifascistas siempre. And because without that, we can have that fight. So that song that I will perform, and then I will give this mic to other people, to share the stage with other friends and colleague, Hermano y Hermana, is about that. This song is called Antifa, Antifa System. So kick can for the track, baby. So, clap, huh? Somos los cholos, los flights, los caras de nana, los caras de, na. de, cara de nana na. Somos los patis, pelados, los pumas, los choros, los cholos y más. Somos los cholos, los cholos, los flights, los caras de nana, nada Somos los choros, los flights, los caras de nana, los caras de nana na. Pa' mí que tu carta siempre fue derecha, me da la sospecha que tú te aprovechas Tú nada, cosecha ni prende la vela, ni ahí con tu escuela no te
0: you have been listening to voices from the Global South speaking at the massive rally outside the COP26 UN Climate Summit in Glasgow, Scotland on November 6, 2021. This is On the Ground. Stay with us. This is On the Ground, onthegroundshow.org, Voices of Resistance from the nation's capital. I'm Esther Ivarum. And now I'm joined by Bob Schleyhuber, known by many people here in Washington, D.C. as a peace builder, peace activist, activist in general. And he just returned from covering the ongoing conflict in the country of Ethiopia for Radio Sputnik, where he hosts a show called Political Misfits. Welcome to On the Ground, Bob.
2: Thank you so much for having me.
0: Well, I think that we want to listen to the report that you filed from Ethiopia, and we're going to do that right now.
2: One of the most stunning historical and ecological sites in all of Africa, Lake Tana's monasteries and its 148-foot Blue Nile Falls attracts visitors from around the world. But now, the continent's third largest lake, and the source of the Blue Nile itself, is flooded with makeshift camps housing displaced people from throughout Ethiopia's Afar and Amhara states.
1: We left our home because we heard TPLF fighters were anti-Amhara and were killing Amharas. We also heard Gazachu, a TPLF spokesperson, on different media outlets teaching as if Amhara are the enemy of Tigray people. We also heard that Amharas were being killed in Raya, Maikadra, and other places. We also heard the TPLF fighters were raping women. When we heard they were coming, I feared for my girls and my family. I didn't want to put them in danger of being raped and killed. That's why we left.
2: That was Abnet Felaki, a 52-year-old grandmother and professional housekeeper from Lalibela, a UNESCO World Heritage Site. Her story was echoed by many others at the camps. Mala Abera, a 20-year-old transportation worker, fled his home after the Tigray People's Liberation Front, the TPLF, invaded the town of Geshenna.
5: People my age were taken
1: by the TPLF and were put on the front line of the war. And we will be the first target, like a shield for the TPLF.
2: For nearly 30 years, the TPLF ruled the country of Ethiopia with a heavy fist, dominating all spheres of government, the economy, and society. That was until 2018, when the Ethiopian people rejected the TPLF through mass demonstrations and elections, elevating Dr. Abiy Ahmed to prime minister, and relegating the TPLF to the northern state of Tigray, Africa's second most populous country, with 115 million people, looked poised to reform its state structures, unite its people, and reject the exploitation of its resources and its people by the Western world. That vision has now been shaken, as the TPLF on November 4, 2020, launched what is called the Northern Command Attacks, killing hundreds of Ethiopia National Defense Forces soldiers at five military bases in the most northern state of Tigray. This shocked the people and government of Ethiopia and set the stage for the TPLF's march south towards the capital of Addis Ababa, through the states of Amhara and Afar, in an attempt to violently take the country back. I arrived at Bole International Airport on November 3, 2021, nearly a year after the first attacks. At almost exactly the same time, a U.S. State Department email landed in my inbox reading Do not travel to Ethiopia due to armed conflict, civil unrest, communications disruptions, crime, and the potential for terrorism and kidnapping in border areas. TPLF forces had advanced to the cities of Desi and Kambolcha, 230 miles to the north, northwest of Addis Ababa, strategic for their position along a major roadway to the port of Djibouti, and were reportedly the TPLF imminently approaching Addis Ababa. As concerning was the idea that I was stepping into a country whose government, according to the New York Times, NPR, CNN, and the Washington Post, was responsible for the intentional starvation, and some even said genocide of its own people in Tigray, a sort of collective punishment for being the home of the TPLF. These claims helped spur the U.S. government into imposing a sanctions regime on the Ethiopian government in September of this year and removing Ethiopia from the list of benefactors of the African Growth and Opportunity Act, the GOA, the day before my arrival. I wasn't sure what to expect entering a country run by a government who, I was told, had committed great atrocities and deserved such sanctions. But as soon as I left the airport, what I saw was different from what I read in U.S. media and U.S. government declarations. People in the streets of Addis Ababa were not on a war footing And while the people were surely on edge due to their own government's declared state of emergency, there were no loud calls by the city's 5 million people for the death of the compatriots in Tigray. Further shaking my trust in U.S. media, on the same day, a joint investigation team, tasked by the United Nations High Commissioner for Refugees and the Ethiopian Human Rights Committee, found no factual basis that the Ethiopian government had committed genocide in Tigray and the claims that hunger was being used as a weapon of war were without merit. Reporting in the U.S. media was not only inaccurate, it was incomplete. Absent were voices like Zalem Mengestia, Deputy Commissioner General of the Ethiopian Federal Police, who spearheaded the Ethiopian Ministry of Justice's criminal investigation on serious crimes against civilians in Amhara and Afar regional states. He explains the crimes of the TPLF like this.
10: They are trying to destabilize, and then they are terrorized these innocent Afar and Amhara people. We don't, they don't have any weapon. They don't have their, they are not intent to fight them, but they are coming their village, and then they are killed, their animals, they are looting all their, their property, they are killed, some of them, they are raped.
2: Two days later and soon after I arrived in Bahar Dar, the capital of Amhara region and home to Lake Tana, any trust I still had in U.S. media and the U.S. government was completely ruptured. Joined by a translator, I arrived at the Zan Zalima Internally Displaced People's Camp to hear story after story from Ethiopians from the Afar and Amhara states who fled their homes due to TPLF aggression. While it was clear that the Ethiopian government was unable to provide basic necessities like food, security, and medical services to those arriving at the camps, by no means were they the cause of people's displacement and suffering. As I was given a tour of the camp by its residents, I found plenty of people who, like me, wanted to know why the U.S. government was willing to be so brazen in its support of the TPLF which the democratically elected government of Ethiopia has labeled a terrorist group, and why U.S. media was so one-sided in their coverage of the humanitarian crisis. Kiros Yigza, a 30-year-old businessman from Sakota, Amhara State, explained, We are watching the
1: United Nations and America. They are silent about Amhara's being killed in the Oromia region. They are only concerned about Tigray.
2: One answer is written in the byline of the major U.S. media outlets. Nairobi, Kenya. Nearly 1,000 miles away seems to be as close as some of the worst U.S. media offenders like the AP and Washington Post writer Kara Anna and New York Times Declan Walsh can get to the Ethiopian capital on the limited resources provided to them by their paper's billionaire owners. Addis Ababa resident, filmmaker, and resort owner Tedros Tashomi has some ideas about why his country's story isn't being told fully or
9: fairly. One is the bigger picture which the Western world do not want Africa to develop. Because if Africa develops and starts using its own resources, uh, it's a bad news for the Western world. Since they get all the resources to their factories, to their living livelihoods, they get everything from the chocolate they eat mm. to all the inputs
10: of their factories goes from Africa.
2: Others suggested that the TPLF, having looted the country of its wealth over its three-decade rule, had the best lobbyist money could buy across the political world while others suggested America's longstanding military backing of the Egyptian government, who prefers an Ethiopia at war with itself, preventing it from gaining power through the soon-to-be-completed hydroelectric project, the Grand Ethiopian Renaissance Dam. Sunday, November 7th, was my last day in Ethiopia. I was woken early in the morning by tens of thousands of Ethiopians who gathered in Mescal Square in Addis Ababa in support of the Ethiopian government. They called for an end to the TPLF aggression, for an end of the U.S. involvement in the country, and for the American media to tell the truth. Mr. Biden! Mr. Biden! I arrived in Washington, D.C. the next morning, Monday, November 8th, to find those calls being echoed by thousands of Ethiopians outside the White House. In the name of humanity, we should all hope the TPLF, the U.S. media, and the U.S. government answers those calls.
0: That was a piece produced by my guest Bob Schleyhuber, who recently returned from Ethiopia covering that conflict. And Bob, you know, one of the first things I want to ask you is really about the ongoing coverage here or non-coverage in this country. Most of our listeners will be most informed by, for example, a headline that was on Democracy Now! on Thursday. And it said that the U.N. says 72 drivers who work for the World Food Program have been detained in the country's northern afar region one day after the UN reported a group of staffers had been arrested in Addis Ababa. Rights groups are warning, detentions are targeting ethnic Tigrayans with prominent community members, including a bank CEO and religious figures, being rounded up by authorities. This comes after the government declared a state of emergency amid a mounting humanitarian crisis and threat of all-out war. And hearing about the conflict and really trying to understand what's happening from progressive media, the few reporters like yourself, a few other outlets that are really giving a more well-rounded view of what's happening there. I had to question really what this headline is telling me. So, you know, having just listened to your piece and hearing the coverage like this, since you've returned, what's your update you want to give on the grounds, listeners, about what's happening in Ethiopia. Yeah,
2: thank you again for having me. And I think the name of your show is so vitally important for journalism on the ground. And to be there in Addis Ababa and to be in the state of Amhara and Bahardar to see what was taking place on the ground was much different than what I was reading in the US papers. And it's shocking to think that the Washington Post and the New York Times, with their billionaire owners, can't get their journalists closer to Addis Ababa than Nairobi, Kenya and other media outlets reporting here from the United States just basically kind of getting lost in our own little echo chamber. If you're there in the country, it is clear that the responsible party for this war, for this aggression is the Tigray People's Liberation Front, who were in power in that country for 27 years. And it wasn't like they were just casually in power with a bunch of other tribes and ethnic groups across Ethiopia. No, they were ethnic chauvinists. They desperately wanted there to be ethnic groups with privilege over other ethnic groups in the country. And and that permeated society, the way people thought, the way people interacted, the way people held power, and it, and it permeated the police force of that country, the military, the police, your spy agencies, it was all TPLF. And so now you have the TPLF, which in the early hours of November 4th, 2020, led an uprising against the Ethiopian government, their own comrades, their own fellow soldiers at five bases in the northern Tigray state of the country and then began this offensive war marching south to Addis Ababa. And you say to yourself, if you're the Ethiopian government, the democratically elected government, are you not going to be concerned about TPLF officials that still live in Addis Ababa, people that have sympathies towards the TPLF that are marching south towards their country right now? And yet here in the Western papers, it's being framed as if it's ethnic Tigrayans that are being stopped and searched. And it's clear when you're there on the ground The Ethiopian people do not see Tigrayans as Tigrayans. They see them as Ethiopians that live in the state of Tigray, just as they see those that live in the state of Amhara as Ethiopians. There is not an animosity and a hatred amongst the people of Addis Ababa or Bahar Dar, where I was, against the Tigrayan people. That's much different in the United States, where you think after 9-11, we started rounding up and targeting Muslims who were innocent civilians who weren't even in positions of power Before the Hmm. September 11th attacks. That's how our country is operating, and that's how it's being presented within Ethiopia right now, and that's not the situation. As for the United Nations, the United Nations is a huge institution, uh, and it's not always clear cut of who they're working with on the ground for what purposes. And the UN aside, the TPLF has been shown to take these quote unquote humanitarian aid trucks for their own military purposes, siphoning off much needed fuel and much needed resources within the region. But where I was at in Amhara, you could get UN trucks there, but there are no UN trucks heading to Bahardar to the camps that I visited. There is no food at these camps. And I mean, honestly, the Ethiopian government's not there either because they're already resource-strapped because of Western exploitation and now having to fight uh, or defend against an offensive aggression that the Ethiopian government's not there. But where are the headlines saying UN fails to get food to Amhara region, because the TPLF are one year into leading an aggressive war. It's just such mm-hmm. a narrow framing that we're being offered by the likes of Democracy Now and Other, who I usually agree with outlets on these issues of war and peace. And to see the whole apparatus right now failing itself is is really devastating to see.
0: Well, just a little bit more on the press and the media, the idea you know this reminds me a lot of the reporting on Syria and where you had maybe a few reporters on the ground who were actually uh, able to uh pierce through this the fog of propaganda that was basically being fed by the state department about how to view that conflict and so a lot of the reporting came from some type of Syrian outposts based in Europe <laughs> and you know, they weren't there. And it turns out like they were funded by many of the countries uh, attacking Syria. So when you were there, were there echoes of what the United States tried to do to Libya in terms of uh, attacking Libya under the so-called, on a so-called humanitarian basis?
2: Yeah. Yeah. Several times I heard that conversation.
0: Yeah. And what, what, what is that conversation?
2: Yeah. I mean, it's just a frustration with the United States. And to think of the last 20 years, the Ethiopian people, I know as Americans, we, and not your listeners, but so many Americans have such a American centric perspective of the whole world that we don't know what's happening in the rest of the world. But the rest of the world knows what's happening in the United States, because our policy here at home, greatly impacts their policy. And to watch the United States the last 20 years, do what they've done across the Horn of Africa and across the Middle East People are aware of this and, and people would list not only what's happened in Libya, but as Syria as well. As you mentioned, what's happening in Yemen right now, what happened in Iraq and continuing to happen in Iraq and Afghanistan, the standing of the United States abroad is really on the decline. And, and it's a 20 year uh, and it's obviously before them, but more just kind of recent history that's as far back as Americans are able to go, maybe it's 20 years with our history But people are really sick and tired of what the United States are doing. People are aware of it, even at these uh, internally displaced people's camps. Again, I mean, you would think that people wouldn't have access to Western media or news if they're fleeing for their lives, having to walk hundreds of miles with nothing but what they can carry. You'd think people wouldn't be aware of what the United States media was doing. But everywhere I I went, people were calling out the lies of the United States media. And people aren't going to forget this. I mean, our embassy evacuated and said everybody should get out and the people there are well aware of our support of the aggressor, the TPLF right now, that the United States' reputation in the Horn of Africa is going to be damaged well into the future.
0: One thing I want to ask you, when you describe the initial attack, are you saying that there were Tigray soldiers within the Ethiopian army and then they just killed their fellow soldiers as part of this attack?
2: Yeah, yeah, that is what I'm saying. And and it was shocking because after that initial attack took place, the TPLF went on, their spokesperson went on national television, took credit for the attack. They said it's a preemptive attack. And many people have related it to what Israel does to its enemies around the world. The TPLF was saying to the Tigray people, the government hates you. The government wants to starve you to death. The government uh, is trying to commit a genocide against you. Therefore, we are going to preeminently attack the Ethiopian government to protect you. And they were able, because of 27 years in power and a lot of money diverted from feeding and uh, and providing health and education to the people, went to the best lobbyists around the world to help shape these narratives for people. So they were basically able to convince a lot of people that they were doing it to support the Tigrayan people. And those five bases in the northern part of the country sit to the south of Eritrea. And because of the decades-long conflict between Eritrea and Ethiopia, those are some of the largest bases in the country. And so by attacking that, the TPLF was really able to knock the Ethiopian government back on its heels. And I think the Ethiopian government's initial response, one, just trying to figure out what is happening, why are we being attacked, and how are we going to respond to this, by people that were the longtime military and police general's of the country doing so. They're, they're, I want to say, talented military officials, but they were the military head until 2018. They knew what they were doing. And because the Ethiopian government wasn't able to counter that, I think the TPLF was able to get a foothold and be able to wage this at least now into its now second year, which is just shocking, uh, war on the government of the country.
0: Yeah, in terms of the population, the, the the measurement of the populations, for example, the Tigray is a minority. They are a minority in the country, whereas the other groups form a majority in terms of the ethnic groups. Yeah. So you had a, an ethnic minority ruling over other eth- ethnic majorities in the country. So that was also a, a, a source of friction, especially if you have this tiny minority wanting to exert some type of ethnic superiority yeah. <laughs> over yeah. everyone else. And the other thing is that I don't think that people realize that while the while the TPLF was in power, they were a cooperating power with the west in terms of uh being able to i guess extract resources there mm-hmm. or play a part in the uh so-called cold war you know and be a proxy in in that region against whoever the united states wanted to be against at that time right yeah, yeah. so we, we're running out of time but i just wanted to give people a little bit of sense of that so that they understand the you know when anthony blinken starts talking or this new envoy who's you know Jeffrey tasked yeah, yeah who's tasked to go there when they start talking people understand a little bit of the history of the united states and the tplf and and other western countries interest there and then i i know we, we don't have a lot of time but also you know how much egypt is involved in, in targeting Ethiopia.
2: Yeah. I mean, Saudi Arabia sits right there as well. But obviously, going from Donald Trump, who called on the Egyptian government or said the Egyptian government would be justified in bombing the Grand Ethiopian Renaissance Dam, a hydroelectric, a clean energy project that could bring tens of millions of people in the Horn of Africa electricity. And to have Donald Trump say, oh, they could possibly bomb it, and to have it followed up by Joe Biden supporting the TPLF, who is labeled as a terrorist organization by the democratically elected. And again, I'm mocking Western democracy, as I say, democratically elected government as if that is the standard bearer for political uh, institutions in the world. But again, if the United States cares about democracy, which shout out to uh, the need for statehood and democracy here in Washington, DC, then they would back the Ethiopian government uh, and not the Egyptians and not the TPLF. But from Donald Trump to Joe Biden, very little has changed. I think the struggle, is that the TPLF, like, if you wanted to stop the war, the TPLF just needs to, like, demobilize and de-arm. It's, it has nothing to do exactly. with the Ethiopian government.
0: Yeah, and so exactly. the United
2: States, it was interesting, if you look at the timeline people were showing me, and they were, like, anytime the TPLF was advancing and were, like, kind of, quote-unquote, winning, the U.S. government was completely quiet. But anytime right. the TPLF has been losing or, like, not doing well, then that's when they're, like, oh, we should do negotiations, negotiate, they should just, like, negotiate. But yeah, what's confusing like, what, to me is Jeffrey Feldman in his speech at the U.S. Institute of Peace last week made it very clear that the TPLF was not welcome in Addis Ababa, that it was like a red line for the United States and that the people of, like as you mentioned, like the 5 million people in Addis Ababa just kicked them out after popular uprisings across the country are not going to like let them run the government again. But the TPLF is like their demand is to be an equal seat of the government and they seem like they want to go to Addis Ababa. So I don't know what exactly Blinken thinks he's going to negotiate when the lines are already seemingly like at odds with each other.
0: Okay. Well, you've certainly done a tremendous service by going and providing an on-the-ground report there. Thank you, Bob. Thank you. And that will do it for today's show. This is On the Ground, ground onthegroundshow.org. Voices of resistance from the nation's capital. Special thanks to Chantel James and Bob Schleyhuber for their contributions to today's show. And also an on-air thanks to Verna Avery-Brown for the use of her phenomenal interview on the Howard University protests on last week's show. You can check out all of our current and shows on the website we maintain, onthegroundshow.org, and you can reach out to us and support us there as well. You can also like the show at On the Ground Show on Facebook and Twitter. And thank you to all of our supporters on Patreon.com at On The Ground Show. Our podcast, On The Ground, with Esther and on all your podcast platforms. Our official podcast, our social media pages and website all have a protest sign with green lettering that says On The Ground. The music we played this hour included Higher Ground by Stevie Wonder, Mother Tribute to Native Women by Ulali, and our theme music is Voodoo Child by Jimi Hendrix. I'm Esther Ivarum. Until next time, take good care and keep raising your voice. Peace. Please let me borrow your ear for a few more seconds and ask you to support On the Ground in our year-end fun drive. You can go to patreon.com forward slash on the ground show and we post all of our shows there and also some exclusive content. and you know, they have a new once a year function now. So since the smallest gift is $3 a month and they give a 10% discount for an annual gift, you can just make my day for just $33 for the whole year. Isn't that something? So for just $33, you could just make my day. I would love to get more Patreon subscribers, I see some people have thousands of subscribers and I think maybe because I raise money for Pacifica people think that I'm raising it for me or that I can get paid by Pacifica and I'm on a lot of Pacifica stations but this setup that I've created is something so that I can create compensation for myself and and actually continue doing the show which is very difficult on a volunteer basis with uh, volunteers and you know, just, uh, our energy until we're, we burn out. Right. So, uh, patreon.com P A T R E O N.com. And also you can give on PayPal, uh, Patreons preferred so I can get you all the exclusive content and you can get a link. You get a link right in your email box your email box every week with all the shows. And of course this is tax deductible. If you're doing your year end giving and you know, you're looking for uh, a charity to donate to, we are a 501 C three and you can donate and take it off on your taxes. So do that, please support the show and I'd appreciate you so much. Oh, and you can also go to the website on the ground And if you click on the donate tab, it will tell you always to give, you know, some people old fashioned, they want to send a check. We can, we can do a check. We can do other types of payments as well. All right. All right. Bye. Peace.